0: I'm David Pluff, and this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Our guest today on Battleground is Adam Jenelson. I'm sure many of you have seen Adam on MSNBC. He's the executive director of the progressive organization Battleborn Collective. He's the former deputy chief of staff to the legendary Senator Harry Reid from Nevada, Democratic majority leader. And he's the author of a new book about the filibuster and why we must get rid of it called Kill Switch. The Rise of the Modern Senate, and the Crippling of American Democracy. No subtlety there. I'm really looking forward to talking to Adam about the origin of the filibuster, how its use has changed over the decades, and why we must get rid of it now. I want to talk about what's been going on in Washington, where this is an increasingly heated debate. But first, as some of you may be aware, Steve Schmidt recently posted a statement on Twitter explaining that he's decided to take some time off from his various projects in order, as he put it, to get healthy mentally, physically, and spiritually. Among the projects Steve is stepping back from is this podcast, and we wish him well. In his absence, I'm going to continue hosting Battleground while we figure out what's next for the pod. So we wish Steve and his family the best as he's taking some time to step back. I want to thank all of you who are such awesome and important listeners to Battleground. Thank you for sticking with us. Before we get into the conversation with Adam, I'll offer some of my thoughts about what's going on in Washington and in the country. So the big thing is the COVID relief package. It's not a certainty that it passes the Senate, but seems very likely a certainty it passes the House. And what's fascinating to me is you've actually seen support for the bill grow in public polling. You know, normally that doesn't happen. What's fascinating about that is there are a bunch of Republicans out there, millions of them who think Joe Biden did not win the election, (laughs) who are supporting his relief bill. And that tells you how popular it is. You've got Republican governors out there supporting it. You've got the business community almost unanimously supporting it. So it's great to see that kind of support build. The vaccination uh, progression is really accelerating. And obviously, giving the economy the boost it needs through the relief bill and then getting enough people vaccinated is how we're gonna turn away from this pandemic period and ultimately beat it. And so we see how important it is to have a president and an administration spending all their time focused on the central goal. And that is to get more vaccines in production, to get them distributed, to get them in people's arms, to get a relief package, to be honest about the threat. And the Biden administration is pretty clear. Some of these variants are deeply concerning and we're kind of in a race against them. And so I'm sure we all take a deep breath every day, thankful that we have a president who's not attacking people. He's just trying to attack the problems. But, you know, the existential threat hanging over all of us is the threats to democracy. We survived the Trump effort at a coup, but we see what's happening. We had Mark Elias on this podcast a couple of weeks ago. Since that podcast, the number of bills that have been introduced around the country by Republican legislators is scary. They are going after vote by mail. They're going after early votes. They're attacking souls to the polls, an effort on Sundays to get people to go from church to early vote sites in many states. So their response to the election is not to sit back and reflect about where they can improve their performance. They just want to stack the deck and make elections as white as possible and as old as possible. And that's another reason why we have to get rid of the filibuster because we have to pass voting rights at the federal level. The idea... That the election doesn't matter. Let's stack the rules so that we can oppose it on whatever grounds. That's kind of where we are in this country. And it's going to be uh, hanging over all of us as a significant threat, almost a fatal threat, if we don't survive this period. And I think that requires getting rid of the filibuster. That requires not losing the Senate or the House. It means winning the presidency in 24. It means winning back more state houses and governors, mansions. Everything's on the line. And that's why I really wanted to talk to Adam Jentleson today, because Adam is such an expert about the filibuster, about the rules of the Senate, about what's at stake here. So we'll jump into that conversation with Adam. Adam Jentleson, welcome to Battleground. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I want to start, if you don't mind, um, if you could just take a little bit of time to remind people the origin of the filibuster and what its stated purpose was at that time. Absolutely. I think it's good to level set here because
1: people know one thing about the Senate, they think of the filibuster, and they think it's a fundamental part of the institution. And the truth is that it's not. It was not part of the original Senate. And the overwhelming body of evidence says that if someone had tried to invent something like the filibuster, when the Senate was created, the framers would have opposed it. And the reason we know this is that the framers were writing the Constitution in the shadow of the Articles of Confederation, which had been the first draft of American government. And the Articles of Confederation had a supermajority threshold in its Congress. And this was widely perceived by the framers themselves as the reason that it had failed. And so they were very cognizant as they were drafting the Constitution and creating the Senate not to give a minority. The ability to block what the majority wanted to do. They created a system with lots of checks and balances. You've got two houses of Congress, the presidency, and the judiciary. But every decision point within that system of checks and balances was meant to be majority rule. And they were very clear about this. They even had heard some of the same arguments you hear today about why a supermajority threshold, and by that I mean any threshold for passing something that is higher than a majority, like the 60 votes we have in the Senate today. They'd heard all the arguments for why a higher threshold like that would promote bipartisanship and compromise, and they rebutted these arguments. In Federalist 22, Alexander Hamilton said, what at first sight may seem a remedy is in fact a poison. And he went on to explain that while you might think that a higher threshold would promote compromise, in fact, it provides an irresistible political temptation to the minority to throw a monkey wrench into the system and block whatever the majority wants to do just to make them look bad and try to regain power. So, In a way, Hamilton saw Mitch McConnell coming. (laughs) And that's why they made sure that there was no ability of the minority to block it. So when it started to be created in the middle of the century and then strengthened in the Jim Crow era, it was done for the explicit purpose of strengthening the hand of Southern segregationist white supremacist senators who saw the march of history and the march of the majority moving against slavery at first and then against Jim Crow in the 20th century. And so they wanted to give more power to the minority. And so they innovated new means that we would today call the filibuster to empower the minority to impose a veto over the majority. And for the vast majority of its existence, the Senate was a majority rule body for every issue except civil rights. And the filibuster was only applied to issues of civil rights all the way up through 1964. So its explicit purpose when it was being invented and professionalized in the way we see it today was to block first efforts to abolish slavery, and then civil rights bills in the 20th century. So that is its origins. It was not meant to be here. And the reason it is here now is because white supremacist senators, self-avowed white supremacist senators,
0: brought it into existence. So that's its toxic and racist origin. I think you make such an important point for people to understand, because I think there's a mythology that somehow the filibuster was like, sacred tablets being brought down the mountains by our founders. (laughs) But you're saying the exact opposite is true. So I want to talk about the filibuster really post the 1960s to today. But let's talk a little bit about how it was used to fight attempts to abolish slavery and any number of civil rights actions. John Calhoun was the sort of father of the filibuster. Is that correct? Yeah,
1: that's right. In the 19th century, Calhoun came along and His view was that the power of the numerical minority in the Senate, specifically the one he represented, which were the slaveholding states, that the power of the minority was not strong enough. And he was explicit about this. He wrote about it. He spoke about it. He said, Madison's system didn't give enough power to the minority. And I should note, too, that because James Madison is often referred to as the chief patron saint of minority rights, Madison wanted the minority to have a voice in the process, but he didn't want them to have a veto. Calhoun was the one who came along and said, I want to strengthen that voice for the minority into a veto. And Calhoun innovated what we would today describe as the talking filibuster, the sort Mm -hmm. of Jimmy Stewart style, standing on the floor, giving a long speech uh, and trying to hold something up. Now, what's important to understand about that is two things. One, it's relatively weak compared to the filibuster we have today, because you could only delay something for as long as you could physically hold the floor. So, you know, we're talking days, weeks, if you could get together a group and pass the baton back and forth. Maybe you could do it for a few weeks, but eventually you'd have to yield. And the other thing that's important to understand is that there was no way to increase the number of votes that was required to pass a bill. So even though you could use this talking filibuster to delay things, the talking filibuster that Calhoun invented, you couldn't stop them. And so virtually zero bills through the entire 19th century and into the 20th century, only a handful of bills throughout the entire more than 100 years were ever stopped conclusively by the filibuster because eventually the people who were talking had to sit down and the bills would pass or fail on a majority vote basis. Right. And I just want to underscore this because this covers the golden age when we think of Daniel Webster and Henry Clay, the great compromises of that era. All of those compromises were forged in a Senate that was a majority rule Senate. The Missouri compromise barely passed by two votes. Right. So That was a majority rule Senate, and even though the filibuster started to emerge, it could still only delay, and eventually the majority
0: eventually would rule. So when did that change? When did majority rule, at least for a set of issues, no longer become operative, and the filibuster, as we understand it today, kind of began to be more present? Is that in the 1960s? Starting in basically the 1920s is when it
1: started and then continued up through the 1960s. So... The rule that allowed this to happen was introduced in 1917, but the rule that was introduced in 1917 was never supposed to become used to apply a higher threshold to bills. Mm -hmm. It took some time for people to figure out how to repurpose it and use it for this purpose. And the motivation that spurred that innovation was white supremacy. What happened during this period is that civil rights bills started to pass the House of Representatives by wide margins, come over to the Senate where they seemed to have majority support, and they had presidents of both parties during this period ready to sign them. So civil rights bills were ready to pass as early, actually as 1891, there was a, a bill to end poll taxes that appeared to have majority support, but was scuttled by a filibuster. But starting in the 1920s, it was very clear that America was ready to start passing civil rights bills. These were anti-lynching laws and anti-poll tax laws. We're sort of taught... there was some wisdom in this delay, and that maybe America wasn't ready for civil rights until the 60s. But that's not true. Gallup first polled civil rights bills in 1937. It polled anti-lynching laws, and it found 72% Mm. of the American people in support of federal anti-lynching laws. It polled anti-poll tax laws in the 1940s, and it found upwards of 60% of Americans In support. So basically, what Southern senators had to do in the face of this majority support for civil rights bills is they had to figure out a way to empower themselves to block them. And that's when they started reaching for this rule that had been introduced in 1917 and applying this higher threshold, but only applying it to civil rights bills. The only bills that were killed by applying this higher threshold through the filibuster were civil rights bills. Every other bill during this period continued to pass or fail on a majority vote basis. So this is obviously the post-war period where we built post-war America. And there were two standards where civil rights were being forced to clear a higher threshold and everything else was still passing on a
0: majority threshold. And how was that enforced? How are the boundaries kept only around civil rights legislation and not additional legislation? Well, it took a lot of energy to
1: apply the filibuster back then. It took a real commitment and you had to, you know, do the Jimmy Stewart thing. You had to physically hold the floor and it usually took coordination between 10 to 20 people to actually hold the floor for longer than a day or two. So the only issue that provided senators with enough motivation to put in that effort was civil rights. Other issues occasionally, very rarely, would run into a filibuster, but they would quickly be resolved after maybe a long speech or two, and they would reach a resolution and get around the filibuster and pass within a reasonable amount of time. But to actually kill a bill with the filibuster, as they did to every civil rights bill, took major commitment and you needed a large number of allies. White supremacy was the only thing that provided
0: enough motivation to do this on a sustained basis over several decades. So then what changed in 1964? How did this get broadened out in its application? What happened in 1964, of course, is that LBJ broke a Southern filibuster Mm
1: -hmm. using the cloture rule. And I should just back up for one second. The rule that was introduced in 1917 is called the cloture rule. You could better understand it as closure. It's a rule that ends debate. And the idea was there would always be a supermajority of senators who could come together on a procedural vote and say, all right, time to wrap this up. We may or may not support the bill itself, but we think it should get an up or down vote. And that vote to end debate is what required the supermajority. So in 1964, this was the first time anybody was able to actually get That vote to end debate and break a filibuster on a civil rights bill. And a lot of people at the time thought, okay, well, that's it for the filibuster. It's going to go away. But unexpectedly, what happened is it lost its direct association with segregation. And other senators who may have been in favor of civil rights couldn't help but see how effective this tool had been for the Southerners against civil rights. And they thought to themselves, well, hey, maybe I could use this tool on my pet issue and use it as a leverage point to force some concession or something else on the things that I care about. At the same time, the Senate's workload was growing massively during this period. This was the Great Society and the creation of new agencies like the EPA and the Department of Energy in the 1970s. So the Senate's workload was growing massively. So between the fact that senators started to experiment with the filibuster, and again, this is a you know, very small number of times, maybe a handful of times during a two-year session in the Senate, They started to experiment with it on other issues. And then the Senate leaders started to dread the prospect of a filibuster. And so they started to canvas the caucus ahead of time and say, hey, is anybody planning on filibustering? If you are, please let me know. Mm -hmm. And if you just let them know, they would often not bring that bill to the floor, or they would know that it would require a higher threshold to vote. So it sort of lost its segregationist taint, It started to be utilized in other issues, and leaders started to defer to the filibuster, or at least the prospect of a filibuster, because they had a lot of scheduling to do. And if a bill was potentially facing a filibuster, it fell down on their priority list, and that allowed them to schedule the Senate's workload more efficiently. But what's really important to understand is that we're still talking about a very small number of filibusters per two-year period. If you look at the chart for the number of filibusters, it's a total flat line at basically zero or maybe one or two through the first half of the century whenever there was a civil rights bill. And then it starts to rise in the 1970s and 1980s gradually, a little bit more during the 1990s and early 2000s. And then when McConnell comes along, it spikes, uh, skyrockets, and, and has not come down since.
0: This is such important history because I think people need to understand its unholy origin, how it was expanded in the 60s, and how it's really been weaponized. We'll be right back after a short break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to Bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at Bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. Bluenile.com code LISTEN. Battleground is back. We're here with Adam gentleson Your former boss, Harry Reid, my former boss, Barack Obama, so many folks, senators, who I think at some point in their life protected the filibuster have now decided it's time for it to go. Talk about the journey you've seen people make to sort of like defense, some people strongly, some people more mildly. But now, and we'll get to the remaining exceptions who still support it in the Democratic Party, but now there seems to be almost universal belief that it's time to end it.
1: Yeah. And credit to your former boss, President Obama. I think he was opposed to it for a very long time. My former boss certainly came around. But when I see senators like Manchin and Cinema stating their opposition, I'm reminded of Senator Reid's own support for the filibuster. And he certainly was on record saying he would preserve it. And then, of course, he, he moved to get rid of it. So he underwent an evolution, too. And I think that what happened is that a lot of people came up during the 70s and 80s, in sort of the Mansfield-Bird era, when the filibuster was not used systematically as a tool of obstruction by the minority, it was used sort of as a leverage tool by both sides. And I think the perception was that it was used pretty equally. But studies have been done since then that show that even though it was not being used exclusively against civil rights anymore, that even during that Mansfield Bird era, the filibuster advantage conservatives far more than progressives the things that it was used to block at a far a far higher rate tended to be things that conservatives mm-hmm. opposed that were blocked sort of the nature of the beast here it's something that helps stop progress and makes it easier to obstruct which structurally advantages conservatives so i think that perception for a lot of senators that this thing used to be used equally by both sides it took a long time for that perception to fade i also think that there was still a period of thinking that the Tea Party movement and all that stuff was a fever that was going to break, especially after President Obama was reelected in 2012. It was a hopeful feeling that we would sort of get back to normal. Lasted
0: a few hours, yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. I mean, I write in a <laughs> book about the filibuster against the background checks bill after Newtown was April 2013, so I think that was sort of the moment a lot of us realized that we were not going back to normal. But I think it takes senators a longer time. I think there is an inherent reflex to defend the institution And even when you have a president saying, let's get rid of the filibuster, that almost rubs some senators the wrong way because they say, well, you're from the executive branch. Don't tell us what to do. Exactly. And of course, senators have, you know, they are not lacking in ego. And so I think they think that they have the power to overcome these structural forces and they will be the ones to break through and cause a new flourishing of bipartisanship. So it just takes time. It takes time for them to see that Republicans aren't coming back from the trajectory they're on. And it takes time for them to try their hand at bipartisanship and see that even though they're making a good faith effort, those forces are so strong that they're preventing Republicans from coming across the aisle. But I do think that is starting
0: to sink in on on most of the caucus. And we're very nearly there, I think, on having the votes. You've made an important point that I think is not immediately available to a lot of people, which is the filibuster is actually one of the prime, maybe the prime, obstacle to real bipartisanship, which I think... No matter how hard left or how hard right you are, most people, at least on some issues, would like to see more bipartisanship. So, talk about that. Why is that the case? Yeah, that's right. I think in a lot of these conversations, people assume that
1: if you go for filibuster reform, that you're sacrificing bipartisanship and that it's a trade off. You know, a lot of people, I think, are willing to make that trade off to get results. But I would argue that it's probably not even a trade off. I think that lowering the threshold down to a majority rule Senate where it was for most of its existence. Is the best way to facilitate bipartisanship for the simple reason that you can't have bipartisanship when nothing is getting done. And once things start getting done, that will cause bipartisanship to flourish. And 60 votes is a relatively arbitrary threshold. So let's say you have an infrastructure bill, and that comes to the floor, and you get five or six Republicans to join. And so you've got a 56 vote in favor of an infrastructure bill. But that would fail because it didn't get 60. And that's ridiculous because six votes coming across the aisle today is a massive bipartisan achievement and we should celebrate that. Yeah,
0: so many issues that you and I were involved with through the years. Immigration reform, even a carbon tax, reforming the ACA. The truth is almost all of them had at least 218 House members, over 50 senators, and a presidential signature. Quite frankly, even some during the Trump era, but certainly during the Obama era, Bush era, Clinton era. That's what's so frustrating. And those all, you know, enjoy public support in the 60s or 70s. Yeah, and this was what you saw in the Majority Rule Senate for the previous 200 years.
1: There's a memo from one of LBJ's top aides to LBJ saying he was confident Medicare was going to pass because he could count 55 mm-hmm. votes in favor of it. Medicare passed with 70 votes because a lot of times what happens is it's fought tooth and nail until it gets a right. majority. And then once it's clear, it passes. A bunch of people jump exactly. on board to get credit. I think you'd see that
0: happen Which more often. Which helps with the entire both reality and patina of bipartisanship. So I want to run some sound for a minute of someone who's in the news a lot these days. Comments by Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia.
2: And then let's talk about that.
1: Under what conditions would you vote to end the filibuster?
2: I don't think there is any. You understand, I come from the state that had a senator who served uh, this, this country unbelievable, but the bottom line was he was a defender of the Senate. He used to tell me, Brett he said, hey, Joe, he says, when I was governor, he says, let me tell you about the Senate. It's a special place. There's nothing like it in the world. He says, why do you think Rhode Island has two senators in California, the smallest and the largest? Why do you think that? Don't you think our founding fathers were thinking of basically how the big person couldn't press to the smaller person? Why do you think we have the filibuster so that the minority has input? I was This was ingrained into me. And he said, Joe, they even named a rule after me called the Byrd Rule. You know what that's there for? Why no. I put that in? He said, so they couldn't go around the back door and do away with it. So you're talking about a person that's going to defend the legacy of Robert C. Byrd.
0: Okay, interview on Fox News. So Adam, before we get into discussing that, I want to make clear my views on Joe Manchin. So I was actually asked this interview recently, man, it's really hard for Joe Biden to operate with 50 Democratic senators. I'm like, yeah hell of a lot better than having 48, though. And the COVID relief bill is going to pass. So even Joe Manchin, who's obviously been deeply steeped in the filibuster, as he's had to make arguments about preserving it, talks about the founders. As you just educated us, the founders actually (laughs) were strong proponents of majority rule, not where we've come to the filibuster. So before we jump into the overall debate, can you explain to people what the Bird rule is and how that's relevant to the debate we're having today? Sure. So the Byrd rule is sort of what makes
1: reconciliation restrictive. Mm -hmm. So reconciliation was a process created in the 1970s to allow an expedited procedure for budget-related issues. And then people started abusing it to pass a bunch of stuff that wasn't budget-related. And so in the 80s, Robert Byrd stepped in and said, I'm going to make sure this process is restricted as intended. And it's a series of rules confining the use of the reconciliation process, and we sum up all those rules by calling them the Bird Rule. So we saw minimum wage get struck from the reconciliation package. That is an application of the Bird Rule by the parliamentarian saying this doesn't meet the strict standards governing what is allowed to be used in reconciliation.
0: ACA, of course, was ruled in bounds. All right, so let's talk about the politics of this for a minute. Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema clearly from a political standpoint, they believe that there's some value in occasionally showing some independence from the Democratic Party. Maybe that's Neera attendance confirmation. What I don't understand on the filibuster is I just don't see that there's much, like, I don't think there's many people you know, a Republican who might have voted against them or an independent-leaning conservative who voted against them says, you know what, I'm now going to vote for them because they protected the filibuster. I just don't understand the politics of this. But give me your best case of their positive political argument about why this works for them. Yeah, that's a tough one for me to do. But I would say that I think they thought
1: they were playing on a slightly different terrain than they have found themselves on. I think that they thought there was going to be a more robust cheering section behind their stand in favor of Senate tradition. But you've got David Brooks and David Frum and conservatives coming out saying, yeah, probably Democrats should just get rid of it. I also think that the perception is a little bit that by standing for the filibuster, Joe Manchin was blocking things like the Green New Deal and Medicare for All. And I think what's becoming evident is that the filibuster isn't preventing those things from passing. Those things probably wouldn't pass even if we got rid of the filibuster because they'd struggle to get 50 votes among Democrats. Instead, it's the core of Biden's agenda that he's standing in the way of. And so I think there's a bit of a political miscalculation. I think that they thought they would have lots of Senate traditionalists backing them and maybe you know former majority leaders, not my boss, but others writing op-eds in support. And that hasn't happened. But I also think it's probably long-term, even if it wasn't intended as one, can shift into a leverage play. And I think that they can get a tremendous amount out of this for themselves. I listened to his comments. and I, I sort of zero in on certain words that he said. He said he's not going to end the filibuster. To me, that leaves open a wide range of possibilities to reform it or mm-hmm. change it or restore it or go back to something like the Jimmy Stewart talking filibuster. And I also hear him say it was designed to give the minority input. And I think there are ways to preserve that purpose you know right. letting the minority debate and letting them give input would be a way to get there but I think about cinema and I think about Mark Kelly right and Mark Kelly is up for re-election again, you know the, her fellow senator from Arizona in 2022 because his election was a special election and when Mark Kelly comes to Kristen Cinema and it's several months from now nothing is passing because we've exhausted reconciliation and everything else is getting blocked by the filibuster. I don't see Kristen Cinema telling Mark Kelly to take a hike because of her love for the filibuster. I think that Mark Kelly succeeds or fails in
0: 2022 based on what he can give to the voters on results. I think we're getting there. Exactly. We're going to take a short break. More with Adam Jentleson when Battleground returns. Welcome back to Battleground. The filibuster remaining in place is a critical threat to a lot of Joe Biden's agenda. So we could go through issue after issue if that's the case. It does seem to me that fundamentally though, as we look around the country, we now have the most serious threats to voting rights we've seen since the Jim Crow era. You and I have lived through, particularly after 2008, a lot of insidious efforts, many of them successful, to make it harder to register, to make it harder to vote, restricting early vote. Now we see wholesale, massive parts of the country. And so if we don't at a federal level, pass a Voting Rights Act, the John Lewis Act, I think it's called now, To me, that's an existential threat to the entire enterprise. Like the democracy may not survive it. I believe that strongly because I think if the Republicans were to regain both chambers and the White House, forget about it. Like the door's been opened to autocracy and they won't shut it. And so when you think about the threats to our country that arise by the filibuster remaining in place, I'd love you to sort of catalog the ones that keep you up at night.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is where the scale tips over for me dramatically, because people could say, well, Republicans will do bad things if we get rid of the filibuster. And the counter argument is our democracy will literally slip away if we don't get rid of the filibuster, because all of the things that we need to do to save it will be blocked by the filibuster. And it's everything from the John Lewis Voting Rights Act you mentioned, and ending the systematic voter suppression. We're seeing Republicans double down on this since Biden's election. And then there are structural issues like D.C. statehood, which is another big one for me, because one of the better arguments against getting rid of the filibuster is that the Senate is still structurally tilted towards Republicans and makes it easier for them to get a majority. But that is why we need to pass things like D.C. statehood and Puerto Rico statehood, because you have Wyoming, which has about 600,000 people who are mostly white and gets two senators. And you've got DC, which has about 600,000 people who are mostly black and brown, who don't have any senators. And so one of the ways you can rebalance the Senate and its dramatic tilt towards the right is to pass some of those structural changes. I also think expanding the federal courts is critical. You know, We are basically headed for a doom loop of minority rule by white conservatives if we don't make these changes. And all of these changes will blocked if we don't get rid of the filibuster. And
0: I've wrestled with this through the years, which is as much as McConnell has been the prince of darkness as it relates to use of the filibuster, the one thing you know is if we get rid of the filibuster and they take control, they will exhaust every part of their wish list. They just won't give a shit. We know that about them, right? Right. We hem and haw and, you know, my view is we need to do everything on our wish list too right now. This can be covered as a Senate debate, a Washington debate, a a disagreement. To me, this is an existential question for the country because we might have momentarily survived Trump's efforts at a coup. But the one thing we know historically is an unsuccessful coup is then followed by more coup attempts. And the evidence of that is what's happening in the states to try to restrict voting. And so I think that's for the the mansions and the cinemas like this isn't about easy for me to say your next election. This is about the country surviving, in my view. By the way, I actually think when Trump says I won the election and some of his minions who actually believe it say that as well, I actually think they think, yeah, we won the white election. That's kind of how they view this, right? Like the real voters voted for us and real America. But that's where we're at. And I think your point about the structural one is right. When I think about elections. Because, you know, it wasn't too long ago, you and I would look at maps when we were in government and you'd see senators, Democratic senators in Arkansas, Louisiana, all four in the Dakotas. Those days are gone, hopefully not forever. But our max in the Senate these days is maybe 53, 54. It might even be lower than that. And so we have to maximize electoral chances like in this next election, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, you got to win them all. Because that next cycle, by the way, is pretty brutal in 2024. But that's the reality. And I think that this isn't just about like progressive wish lists. I think the things that are most important right now that the filibuster prevents is the survival of the country and the democracy. I'm actually a little concerned, Adam. I think some of these efforts to restrict voting laws in the states are not getting enough attention. And to me, they should be twinned with a debate about what are we doing about the filibuster.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, this is also a very brass tax political argument for getting rid of the filibuster, which is that Democrats are not going to continue to be a viable party right. if we don't pass these laws. And that's not the reason to do it. We should do it. And it's a shame that voting rights has become a partisan issue. Right but that's a simple fact. And I think that this is why it is so critical. It's also why it's critical to act early. I mean, I probably like you just delay gives me the willies and it makes me nervous, especially when your majority is hanging by one seat in the Senate. And a lot of democracy reform experts will tell you that a lot of these reforms need to be passed relatively soon if they're going to go into effect at any point in the near future. So there has to be an urgency here. And if this is the issue where it's going to come to a head, I hope we're able to get to it very soon because we we have to to save our democracy.
0: So, Adam, the more I think about this, the more I'm convinced if Democrats do not get rid of the filibuster, Mitch McConnell actually will. Am I wrong about that or? No,
1: I I agree 100%. People point to the Trump years and say he resisted Trump's pressure, but I think that the filibuster served a useful purpose for McConnell under Trump because Trump was asking him to do a lot of crazy stuff that McConnell and the Republican establishment didn't want to do. And McConnell got their tax cuts through reconciliation and he got all of his judges and they were happy. And if the filibuster had been gone, Trump would have been calling on them to pass all this crazy stuff and then blaming them for not passing it. But if you picture McConnell running a trifecta with a competent Republican president who will be asking them to do things that McConnell does want to do. He will get rid of the filibuster in a heartbeat. I mean, you want to talk brass tacks. That's another reason why we should do it is that it's silly to preserve a defensive tool that the other side can get rid of with a flick of the wrist and almost certainly will when it comes to their
0: advantage, especially yes. when
1: preserving that tool shoots yourself in the foot and prevents you from passing big things that would save our
0: democracy. Yeah, I think you make such an important point that you know McConnell gets put up a, on a pedestal as protecting a filibuster during Trump. He had to do that. Right. But you, what McConnell will say, if they win the White House and they have the Senate and the House, but all they need is the White House and Senate in twenty twenty will be, I'm getting rid of it. And as you know, McConnell, he doesn't give any shits about anything he's ever said before. And I'll say, Chuck Schumer had Democrats opposed to it. All my people are for it. Since they're all for it, we're getting rid of the filibuster. Yeah. And that would be the tragedy that (laughs) we have all these things that aren't even like, I'm not talking about Democratic agenda items. I think they're American agenda items that get killed. And then my goodness, what they would do with a trifecta with no filibuster, I'm not sure the country would survive it. In fact, I'm quite sure it wouldn't. I agree. I agree. I mean, McConnell blocked
1: Garland on the pretense that no Supreme Court justice should be confirmed in an election year, and then turned right around and confirmed Amy Coney Barrett much closer to the election. Right. This is not a guy who's going to right. be
0: stopped from what he wants to do by the threat of hypocrisy. Right. He will blow right through that. What can the average citizen do out there who's pulling their hair out, who wants to see the filibuster eliminated, who supports all of the things that we could do if that were to happen? What's your advice for them? Normally, I
1: I would not urge people to call Democrats, I would say, put your focus on Republicans. But this is one where it really is a Democratic decision, they have the votes to do it. And I think having worked in the Senate, the phone calls make a difference. Senators really notice when an issue starts to generate more phone calls than other issues. And so I think calling your Democratic senators and saying that President Biden's agenda hangs in the balance, our democracy hangs in the balance here, we want you to move forward with filibuster for aggressively would be a message that I think would resonate.
0: Good advice for everybody. Well, Adam Jentleson, thank you for joining us on Battleground, all you're doing to fight for the country. And always enjoy seeing your comments out there and and keep up the fight, man. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. I want to thank Adam Gentleson for joining us on this episode of Battleground and all he's doing to try and protect and save democracy. Just want to give you all a quick message. So all the recount podcasts done in partnership with iHeartRadio are taking a week off next week. The teams have been uh, at sprint pace, really, since the summer. So they'll be taking a break next week, well-deserved, but all the podcasts will be back the week after that. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams did research for this episode. And as always, Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer.